Well, good morning. I'm Tom Nelson. Welcome to the Leewood campus, and uh, we're really glad you're here today. And uh, we hope you sense the presence of Christ here. Well, I first heard about Brene Brown uh, when her TED Talk went viral. Millions and millions of people observed her talk on human vulnerability and human connection. But I also saw not too long ago that Brene Brown, this wonderful University of Houston researcher, had come back to the church to faith, and she talks about that. Watch. And, you know, it's interesting because my, my return to faith was definitely around that breakdown. That's when I went, you know, but I went for the wrong reasons. I really went because I'm like, this, har- this is hard and this hurts. And in all the midlife unraveling books, they say go back to church. That's what everybody does. So I went back to church thinking that it would be like um, an epidural, like it would take the pain away. Like I would just replace research with church. You know, and then church would make the pain go away. And then, it, you know, I write, all, I write in this book I'm working on right now that it was, you know, faith in church was not an epidural for, for me at all. It was like a midwife who just stood next to me saying, push. It's supposed to hurt a little bit, you know. Um, and so, yeah, so it, it was a completely new experience going back. I thought faith would say, I'll take away the pain and discomfort. But what it ended up saying is, I'll sit with you in it. And I, didn't ever, I never thought until I found it that that would be enough. But it's perfect. You know, it's just I don't feel alone in it anymore. You know, and I don't feel like I did growing up where it was a lot of, you know, I went to Catholic school in New Orleans, and it was mostly like magical thinking. You know, like it was more like there's a reason for everything. If something tragic happens, it was supposed to happen. And I had a mom who was really, you know, very Jungian, very, like, we had a, a horrible loss in our neighborhood growing up, and a woman died. And her son was, er, her son was killed in an accident in her home. And then she was diagnosed with cancer shortly thereafter. And at the funeral, they said something when this little boy died, I think he was a toddler, said something like, and I was, maybe it was in upper elementary school, said, this is not a time to grieve. Um, that's selfish. This is a time to celebrate because, you know, this child with God. And I, I was just, that just me off. I just couldn't even make sense of that. And then on the way home, my mom said, I just want to be really clear with you that this is not a time to celebrate, that if you're sad, that's okay. And then she said, and I get really emotional thank you for telling that. She said, because be assured that God is grieving today too. You know, and I was like, huh? She goes, God's weeping too. And I was like, well, that changes everything, you know? And so I just think, for me, yeah, it's just about being with you. Well, Brene Brown really has some wonderful insight for us, doesn't she? I love her transparency. She reminds us that the Christian faith is not question-free, nor is it pain-free. And don't you love her phrase? I want to say it again because I thought it was so brilliant. The church isn't an epidural, but a midwife standing next to you saying, push, it's supposed to hurt a little. Well, I think Brene is reminding us of what Habakkuk has reminded us, that deep lament is a part of everyone's life. We feel the brokenness of the world around us. We feel the brokenness within us. And what encourages me is that Habakkuk, as well as Brene, says that this kind of Lament does not have to lead us to a numbing despair, but rather to true joy. 
And I want to suggest to you, to be human is to long for joy. It is as if you and I are hardwired for it, and yet its often elusive nature in a broken world often taunts us. And the question that I want to challenge you with this morning, the question that Brene Brown is speaking, that Habakkuk the prophet is saying, is, is it possible to have joy in this broken world? Is it possible? 2,600 years ago, imagine that. The prophet Habakkuk answers that question with a resounding yes. True joy is possible. And if we look at Habakkuk as we have been studying it, we understand that it is arranged when Habakkuk begins his lament asking a bewildering question, and it ends with an exuberant exclamation point. In chapter 1, if you've been with us in this series, you know that it begins with these words, Oh Lord, how long? How long will I pray to you and you don't answer? And then it ends. As we will see this morning, yet I rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk's faith comes to the place all faith eventually comes to, and that is the breaking point when faith hits the wall of unbelief and suffering. The question for us is how does Habakkuk hit the wall and work through it? How does his faith remain intact? Life does not make sense for Habakkuk. There's no question about that. He is utterly bewildered and befuddled by God. Yet, as we will see, Habakkuk finds true joy in God. And the question for the thoughtful reader of this ancient, beautiful Hebrew poetry is this question. How does Habakkuk move from a bewildering lament in chapter 1 to joyful praise at the end of chapter 3. How does he move from bewilderment to hopeful joy in just three chapters? Habakkuk pushes through the bewilderment and befuddlement, the hurt, yes, and the pain, when his faith hits the wall. And what we know from the historical context that His circumstances will not change. They don't change. Life still doesn't make sense. Babylon, this superpower, is ready to pounce down on his beloved nation. Fear still stalks Habakkuk's soul. So what changed? Habakkuk's perspective radically changes. And we saw in this beautiful structure of this book, So in chapter 1, we have a lamenting Habakkuk who watches for God on the the watchtower of lament. He still watches, keeps his eyes open. In chapter 2, a waiting or a listening Habakkuk waits for God with his ears open. And now, as we'll see in chapter 3, if you'll turn there with me, we will find that a prayerful Habakkuk finds true joy. Habakkuk is hard to find, as I've said. It sounds kind of like Shakespeare too, but it's awesome. So I want to encourage you to turn to Habakkuk, go to the table of contents, electric or paper, and follow along as we come to this brilliant book. So Habakkuk, yes. And this morning we want to explore Habakkuk's hope-filled path to joy. And to do that, I would like to raise two underlying questions that these three chapters raise. The first one is this, how do you and I find joy? How do we find it? 
And once we find it, how do we hold on to it? So how do we find joy and how do we hold on to it? Now, in verses 1 through 15, this chapter is split, verses 1 through 15 and 16 through 19. That's the literary structure. The first 15 verses is the answer Habakkuk gives us to this question. How do we find joy? And you will notice verse 1 explicitly lets us as a reader know explicitly a genre change. Literature is important to appreciate a genre. It's the, con- it's the structure in which content is placed. And here we're told right away that this is a prayer of Habakkuk. And we also, don't you know, have this strange word. Uh, it's, it's, in the Hebrew text, it's pronounced shiganov. And uh, one of the crazy things about it is like, what does that mean? I don't know what it means. And frankly, Hebrew scholars for a thousand years don't know what it means. Um... Habakkuk must have known what it meant in his early listeners, but we have no clue what this word means. But the rest of the structure of this beautiful chapter gives us some idea of what it is. You heard as Wendy read Selah or Salah three times, which is a musical term. And at the very end, you'll notice for the choir master. So this poetic verse, this prayer, is not only poetic in nature, it is liturgical in nature. It was used for God's covenant people, like we would sing a hymn together, remembering God's character and his past intervention. So as we understand the flow of this poetry, now let's look a little closer in the text. Look at verse 2. Habakkuk begins his prayer affirming God, his character, and his past intervention. And you'll notice that Habakkuk appeals to God, and very interesting, he says, in wrath, remember mercy. Now, mercy in English is, well, I think of it in a negative way because I think of my biggest brother holding me down, holding my arm behind my back saying, say mercy, you know? But that's not exactly what's going on here. The Hebrew word is racham, which comes from racham womb. It has a deep femininity to it. And it shows the picture of God's feminine nature. He's male and female. God in his fullness is male and female. And the picture here is that Habakkuk appeals to God through the portal of femininity, of God's tender love, of a mom for her child, a unique love for a mom for her birth child or adopted child. So something's going on here. He uses this word to appeal to God, and he is saying, God, I am your child. We are your covenant children. Remember Abraham? Remember David? David? So he says to them, just like Jesus says in The New Testament prayer that we know, this is the Old Testament equivalent. Our what? Our Father who art in heaven. And this is the Old Testament piece of this. He's saying, God, you are our Father. Have mercy on us. And he retraces, you'll notice in poetry, and I'm not going to read it all. You heard it read, and I encourage you to read this carefully today or this week. It's brilliant and beautiful both. But you'll notice how Habakkuk skillfully with the with the skill of a poet, retraces the fingerprints of God's past faithfulness to a people. Do you notice that? Now, poetry, by its very nature, I hope I'm, all you poets here are going to love this. After first service, the poets love the message, okay? But all of us need to appreciate poetry here. I promise it's worth it. Poetry overflows with figurative language. It's rich and beautiful and sensory. And several things emerge here. 
understanding the basic geography and history of the Old Testament, you'll notice, and when you read it carefully, one of the main themes as Habakkuk looks back at God's covenantal history with his people is the Exodus. You remember the Exodus is when God miraculously delivers God's covenant people from Egypt and takes them into the promised land. And you'll notice, again, if you are sophisticated in poetic literature, one of the main themes is allusion, not illusion, allusion after illusion. There are allusions and allusions like sparkling jewels on this text. Continual allusions of the Exodus motif. Habakkuk begins by speaking of God as the Holy One. And you'll notice language that's hard to say, hard to pronounce, Taman or Paran. And these are just different names for Mount Sinai. That's where Moses received the law after they were in uh, uh, the wilderness after leaving Egypt. And with it comes this beautiful poetry of God's manifestation in nature. And if you want to impress your friends at school, impress your teacher, this is really important genre. It's poetic theophany. Poetic theophany. And it simply means that we see God's expression in nature and the poet captures it. You'll notice the flashing of light. You almost can feel like in a movie, your seat moving, right? That's what it feels like from a literary standpoint. The rays of light, thunder, as God manifests himself in time and space, the forces of nature. That's what you feel here. Now, you'll notice as I skip through this quickly, but I want you to see it is you'll have illusion after illusion of the Exodus. For example, the pestilence and plagues of God's power over the puny idol gods of Egypt. You also notice in the text, you'll hear horses and chariots and in the sea, and it's a picture of Pharaoh's armies being drowned in the Red Sea. Remember when God's covenant people were allowed to walk through on dry land, God miraculously divided the water, and then all of the power of the world, the greatest superpower of the day, the greatest army imaginable on earth is swallowed up in the Red Sea. And this is the poetic imagery of that moment. Exodus is one of the defining moments of God's covenantal history. Habakkuk also, you'll notice, paints God as a, uh, having a grand army. And he'll also say that in verse 11, you see this little phrase, the sun and moon standing still. And it's just a reference uh, to Joshua chapter 10, where once God's covenant people went into the promised land, God uh, miraculously intervened and still the moon and the sun so that God's covenant people could win a battle. Literally, the sun and earth stood still. He interrupted the cosmos. These are all memories that through poetry, Habakkuk is reminding his people who are facing very dire circumstances. What's the idea here? Over and over again, Habakkuk reminds his people of God's awesome power and sovereignty. Nothing can stand in God's way. That's the idea. In fact, if you notice verse 12, if you have your Bible open, you'll notice the imagery of the army. Who's the unstoppable army? It's not Babylon, as powerful as Babylon. It's God himself, Yahweh Sabaoth the God of the armies. And notice the text says in verse 12, he marched through the earth in a fury and a threshold, or he, in, sorry, and he threshed the nations in anger. You know, threshing is really a strange image for us in a non-agrarian world. But I grew up on a farm as a kid, and, uh, you know, we used tractors and combines to uh, harvest the wheat. But in county, county, like county fairs, some of the older folks still had the skill of winnowing wheat by hand. There's a winnowing fork, kind of like a rake thingy or a fork. And what they did is they had contests about who could winnow the fastest. And so you, you grab the, the grain, you stick it in there like this, and you throw it up in the air against the wind. And it's just as light as a feather, actually. 
And that's the idea. It's as light as light. You throw it up there and the wind takes the chaff and the wheat drops down. So this was common thinking in the day here. And the poetic idea is that God takes all the nations, just like a little piece of wheat, throws it up with a winnowing fork, poof. Think in our context, kids, of blowing a bubble and having it go poof. That's the idea. Isaiah the prophet will say the same thing in Isaiah 40, that God is so much bigger than nations. The greatest thing of the strongest nation is just a drop in one bucket or literally a speck, a fine speck on a scale. So God's sovereign power, his awesomeness is emphasized here over and over again. And he's helping his people remember family memories. One of the things our family loves to do, and I'm excited because this Thanksgiving, Schaefer and Sarah are both home. That doesn't happen every, well, we'll be home. And Marshall, my son-in-law, and my grand dog, Tucker, by the way, um, which will be interesting. Um, but, you know, one of the things we always do, just about always, when we get together as a family, first of all, we go down our lower level and we watch What About Bob, which is a, one of our favorite Bill Murray movies. But we also look at old family movies of our kids growing up, you know? And the kids, you know, Schaefer's there laugh, and now Marshall laughs, like, oh, look at you. But they always make fun of mom and dad and the glasses we had and the hair and, you know, the clothes and all that. But there's something about remembering our family memories that not only reconnects us to who we are, but it erupts in a sense of joy. And this is what Habakkuk is doing. He's opening up in a poetic way the family memory album, the old movies. And he's reminding God's covenant people to remember. And he's saying, remember in the present, God took care of Egypt. They were the superpower. God can still take care of Babylon. We're still your people. Remember your mercy. See, one of the ways we find joy in our life is to remember our memories. Not only as individuals, but if you're married or have a family, as families. One of the greatest challenges to your faith and mine is to forget God's faithfulness in the past. Isn't it easy to forget? And it's one of the most intense perils to your faith. So can I ask you a question? How are you being intentional about remembering God's faithfulness to you and to your family in the past? Perhaps it is some kind of a journal. I encourage you to have, it can be a simple thing. And when you need to pull that out, when life is hard and the future is uncertain and you're facing tough times, you can look back and say, oh yeah, God did this, didn't he? I remember that job he gave me. I remember that close friend I prayed for. I remember the healing of my bitter and lonely heart. So how are you retracing the footprints of God's faithfulness as an individual and as a family? And if you have, you know, extended family, your grandparents today, continue to remember your family memories and God's faithfulness to you. Perhaps Thanksgiving time is really a good time to do this as a family. To remember together God's faithfulness, God's blessing in your life, no matter what you're facing. And some of you are facing really hard times right now. The children of Israel, when they went into the promised land, after being in the wilderness, what did they do? Is they crossed the Jordan, they had a stone altar remembrance of God's faithfulness. What is your altar remembrance as an individual and as a family? And how do you remember God's faithfulness in your life? How are you remembering it? 
What is your stone of remembrance? If your faith is hitting the wall, either of unbelief or apathy or whatever you're dealing with, look back and remember Habakkuk says. Prophet Jeremiah says the same thing. Remember later? One of the lowest times in Israel, Jeremiah says, I have lost happiness. I don't remember what it is. You ever been there? It's so faint, I can't even remember it. Then he says in chapter 3 of Lamentations, this I recall to mind, therefore I what? I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases. He looks back. Habakkuk looks back. Jeremiah looks back. You and I need to look back. And what we see in this lament is this. Habakkuk looks back, he leans into hope, and he finds joy. He looks back, he leans into hope, and he finds joy. Lament is not to be a pathway to despair. It is to be a pathway to true joy. How do we find joy? We look back and remember, but also we look ahead with hope. Notice verse 16. We often miss this important verse. It's a transition in the poem, a prayer. Verse 16, we read these words. I hear, here's Habakkuk now, I hear and my body trembles. It's literally ever been out of control. You cannot, like either you're so cold, you're shivering. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. <laughs> my legs tremble. It's the idea of they literally are giving out on you. Have you ever had that feeling? Yet, I quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Habakkuk's hope is not some kind of Pollyanna, put your head in the sand, don't worry, be happy, it's all cool. It's not wishful thinking. Habakkuk's hope is the kind of hope that really lasts, that really is worth holding on to. It's a hopeful realism. He knows, and you can see it in the text when you read it, the days ahead are filled with trouble. He knows it. He feels it deeply in his bones. But he is hopeful that at the end of the day, a good outcome awaits God's covenant people. Now, I want you to notice this English word, quietly wait. I want to suggest to you, I think a better translation is the word rest. It's often used and translated rest. The idea here is that Habakkuk says, I will rest in God. Even though verse 17 points out the economic devastation that is going to come. Rest is not passivity. Rest is joyful trust and delight in God. Who is the only one who can deliver you and deliver me. He is the God of salvation. Do you notice in verse 13 where Habakkuk is looking? Habakkuk is looking ahead. There are two Hebrew words brought together would tell us Habakkuk is looking down the corridor of time for the one who will come to rescue God's covenant people, not from Babylon or Egypt, but from the ravages, or Rome, but the ravages of sin and death. It is Yeshua, Mashiach, Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one who saves. You see the imprints a bit in the English, the Hebrew is very profound here. Jesus of Nazareth, who makes it possible to save you and me. There is atoning death on the cross, his glorious resurrection. Jesus is the person who will give you joy and rest. And Jesus says in Matthew 11, right, he invites us to that life. Habakkuk is looking to Jesus. He's longing for that salvation, the ultimate salvation, the one who will bring rest from the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2.1. Jesus is what, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. 
fearful, joyless. You can add and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Rest is ultimately delight in God and joy from the Garden of Eden before sin entered the world. But it's only found in our Creator Redeemer. See, Habakkuk begins this brilliant lament with absolute honest complaint to God. And he moves to such bold confidence in God, it's stunning. Habakkuk is grasping a really important truth 2,600 years ago that is as irrelevant then as it is to your life and mine today. And this is the truth. The true joy comes not from knowing the answers to the ultimate why questions, but knowing the person of a who. It's not the why, it's the who. The God who brings deliverance, the God who saves, the anointed one who brings salvation to the world. One biblical scholar brilliantly summarizes Habakkuk. Habakkuk's transformation from the beginning of this book to the end, and he says this, What began as an interrogation ends in intercession. Worry is transformed into worship. Fear turns to faith. Terror becomes trust. Hang-ups are resolved in hope. Anguish melts in adoration. And then he says the answer to Habakkuk's why is a who. The answer to why is ultimately See, true joy is not getting every question of ours answered. It is not immediately having our circumstances changed. It is resting in the one in whom all answers are ultimately found and whose intimacy joy is found. Habakkuk ends his writing with what has to be one of the most brilliant and stunning microbursts of joy I've ever read in the Bible. Listen to verses 18 and 19. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like deers. He makes me tread on high places. Habakkuk finds joy in God himself. He places his whole life in God's powerful hands and he rests with complete trust in God. Did you see the contrast that Habakkuk brilliantly weaves in verses 16 through 19? You must not miss this. Habakkuk describes us in verse 6 that his feet are literally giving way. Do you see that? It's, it's just, he's come to the end of his rope. He has nothing left. And then in verse 19, what does it say? You give me the strength and effortless grace to have feet like deer. I bound up on high places. I'm in the valley lament. Now I'm on the top of the world of joy with you. What a stunning transformation of grace. In a sense, like this, this is how you remember Habakkuk. Habakkuk begins with a melancholy Eeyore mindset. And he ends with an exuberant Tigger joy. That's it. That's it because he found joy in God alone. Have you found joy like that? Maybe this morning is a transforming morning for you. I pray for that. Maybe you've been looking for joy and many things that are good. 
but not ultimate. If your joy is not in the ultimate who, your joy will betray you at the end of your life, wherever you place it in. True joy is only found in Jesus, the anointed one, the creator, redeemer. True joy is knowing him. It's great to have lots of friends. It's a wonderful thing. It's great to try to achieve things and be successful. But these will never lead to true joy. The joy you were hardwired for is a relationship with him. Jesus longs to give you himself. He wants you to have true joy. So will you in repentance of your sin and faith trust him and come to him this morning if you haven't yet? Many of you here this morning have come to faith in Jesus, but if you're honest, joy is something that's really been really hard for you to hold on to these days. How do you hold on to joy? Let me suggest two things to wrap around your heart, especially this holiday season. First, God is greater than anything you may face. Habakkuk reminds us of this. I don't know what you're facing this week. I don't. But I do know the holidays can be anything but the most wonderful time of year. I don't like that song. Thanksgiving and Christmas is not joyful for everyone. Often it's very hard in the empty chair at this Thanksgiving table. I've been there. In many ways, I'm still there. Of a loved one that's not there anymore. It can fill our hearts with deep sorrow and loss. The kids, the grandkids that may not be coming home this Christmas or this Thanksgiving. The loneliness we feel, isn't it? Family hurts, unresolved conflicts that surface when we gather. An unkind word spoken at the table, a rejection kind of sigh, robs our hearts with joy. Sometimes we have unrealistic expectations at Thanksgiving or Christmas and it leaves us empty when the house is now quiet. Loneliness haunts us like never before. We sing songs, wonderful songs, joy to the world, Advent songs. The Lord has come, but the Lord has not only just come in a manger. Habakkuk reminds us as he looks down the corridor of time, the Lord Jesus is going to come in mighty power one day and set everything right. He is the king, after all, and Lord of lords. Like Habakkuk, we too look for that day. He looked for that day. He longed for that day. He focused on the majesty of God. God's greatness and goodness was far beyond any circumstance he faced. But Habakkuk, like you and me, felt deeply vulnerable. Vulnerable in a broken world. We feel vulnerable in our friendships. Vulnerable in our health, our financial security. But Habakkuk reminds us that our vulnerability is God's great opportunity. It's an opportunity for his strength. Apostle Paul faced deep, deep, difficult times. And he prayed, God, take these circumstances away. What did God say to him? No, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power, literally the text means, is unleashed in your weakness. God's power, my vulnerability, is God's opportunity for us. God's grace gives us a new burst of joy and hope. 
So what are you worrying about? What fear is stalking your soul? What's keeping you up at night? What's discouraging you? What's turning you inward? Habakkuk reminds us, the Lord is your strength. He's massively greater than any circumstance you're facing. And he's strong enough to get you through whatever is tomorrow or even today with the nimble feet of a deer, with effortless grace and power. God is not only greater than your circumstances you face, God is right there when you face it. That's the second thing I want you to wrap around your heart today. The beginning of Habakkuk lament isn't interesting. Interesting is a terrible word. Isn't it stunning? And Habakkuk begins crying out, God, where are you? You've gone silent on me. I can't hear you. Where are you? Where are you? And he ends with, God, you're right there. You're right with me. That's amazing. Brene Brown, again, says it so brilliantly. She says, as I thought faith would say, I'll take away the pain and discomfort, but rather it says, I will sit with you in it. I will sit with you in it. This is what Habakkuk is saying to you and me. I'm not going to take away the pain of change, circumstances you're facing. I'm going to sit there right with you. Prophet Isaiah reminds us this in Isaiah 41. Do not fear I'm with you. Do not anxious look about you. I'm your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. And when you have nothing left, I will hold you in my hands because I'm a good God and I will accomplish my purposes. Jesus' last words to his disciples. What were they? You remember? I am with you always, even to the end of time. Perhaps trying to be a mom of small children seems more than you can handle this week. Perhaps the job you'll go to tomorrow seems more than you can take. Maybe you're facing a threat in your business or job that could radically change your income. Or maybe in school you're facing a difficult class that could change your GPA and your future college prospects. And you really wonder today, can I handle it? The Apostle Paul, who faced overwhelming circumstances, said, yes, you can. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In your challenges, in your weaknesses, in your feelings of vulnerability, in your fears and sorrows, in your grief and your disappointments, you have a God that not only came near, but a God who sits right by you and sits with you through it. He is the good shepherd. He makes you lie down in green pastures. He leads you beside still waters. He restores your soul. Even when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, He is with you. Habakkuk ends, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. The God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like deer's feet. I bound on high places. Let's pray. O God of our salvation, God of truth and grace, God of our strength, God of our joy, God who is unimaginably good, God who is unimaginably great, God who is Emmanuel, God with us. We rejoice and we rest in you and your good nails guard hands. Amen. Amen.